0: We find ourselves in the book of Job this morning. That means that we've gone through beginning in Genesis all the way to Job. So, uh, the Lord is uh, certainly, uh, hopefully, declaring to us His truths as we look into His Word. Hopefully, uh, you made note of this portion of the stanza and ancient words, Martyrs' blood stains each page. They have died for this faith. When we look at the book of Job, it's appropriate that we consider that Job went through a breathtakingly difficult time and in the process of that, basically purchased for us the right understanding of the grace, of the glory of God, of the means of God. Uh, We need the book of Job in order for us to absolutely reject this Theology of retribution, uh, and so it's very, very important for us. And you see, page after page after page that is really a, a rolling, as it were, the waves of the ocean, so that we can properly understand this this issue that Job is right in the center of. And so, was read in your hearing in Job 42, and we will, Lord willing, look through significant portions of the book today as we address ourselves to the progress of redemption, particularly in the book of Job. And so there are a number of primary issues in the book of Job, certainly most notably is this concept of, uh, of the theology of retribution uh, and what it is, how do we understand that, how do we properly really focus on what it is that God is doing and what it has to do with us. And one of the other important issues here that's associated with it is simply the idea of cause and effect. The idea of cause and effect. Now, that may seem like a simple matter to you, but cause and effect is is simply the nature of much of our lives. But we run into trouble when we think a certain cause Is associated with an effect. And when we get that wrong, we are addressing the wrong issue, obviously. And we also see that in this passage of Scripture. That's pretty significant. And I'd like to draw your attention to some very notable failures in understanding cause and effect. And I will draw your attention to a period of time that most of you didn't live through, and that is the 60s. Many people look to the 60s and say that the 60s caused the issue that we are currently in. That would be a significant failure of cause and effect. The 1960s were the fruit of a very significant issue in our nation. A point in time in our nation when basically we walked away from the underpinnings of truth, of morality, of a biblical patriotism, of a work ethic, of the concept of the nuclear family. We were persuaded by voices that were openly standing against the Word of God, and many of our countrymen then bore the fruit that we see as the 60s, and we continue today, of course. Now, there's also a significant aspect of this in our own lives, and certainly there's more to say about cause and effect, but I would draw your attention to this idea. The concept of repenting of a sin and repenting of the character that bore the fruit of that sin. You see, let's say, for instance, if I lie to you and I repent of lying to you, that is not the same thing as repenting of being a liar. There's a tremendous difference there. I can repent, as I should, of the occasion of sinning against someone by way of lying, But I've not touched the characterological issue of being a liar. Do you understand? And so again, if the only thing I see is cause and effect in that sense, and I'm looking at the fruit and repenting of a fruit, when I should ultimately be repenting of that thing which bore the fruit, the character in my life. And this certainly comes out in this book of Job. So I'd like to draw your attention to a few things here. First of all, let's look at chapter one. Job has a number of significant ironies in it. Children, irony is is a literary term or idea uh, that um, it 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 shows us. Uh, it it seems to be. Odd, if you will, that some people in the story know certain things and other people don't, for instance. And that is particularly ironic in the book of Job. For instance, when we look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we see here a description of Job here. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. I'll go down. There's a significant aspect of irony simply in the character of Job because you see, Job's three friends, if you are, and including uh, Elihu, which is not really lumped into the three there, they didn't know this about Job. So, Job's three friends, notice the quotes, uh, you see, they had no idea about the character of Job. But Job is presented to us, who is an individual who was, in fact, very careful about obeying the Lord. Uh, Job had an understanding of the necessity of a redeemer, for instance. We understand that. Job certainly recognized that he was not a perfect man. But there is, I think, you can draw out of the book of Job an idea that he's entrusted himself to God. Now, there's also another significant aspect of irony here, and that's in chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, as well as chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And what I'm talking about here is in chapter 1, verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now, there was another counsel in chapter 2. It's terribly ironic that Job, of course, knows nothing of this counsel. He knows nothing of what the Lord had said to Satan. He knows nothing of this idea that, that God had given Satan a leash, so to speak, such that he would be a tester of Job. But nonetheless, we have the story before us here. So the first real issue that I'd like to address that comes to us from the book of Job is the problem of retributive theology. Now, this is kind of a big word. We don't really use it very much, but basically uh, it it can be associated with this idea of the law of the harvest. Uh, It is associated, uh, again, this idea that I get what I give. In Latin, it's a phrase that's very common quid pro quo. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. I do this for you, you do this for me. Now, the reality is is that while we tend to speak words such that would reject this theology, the reality is when difficult things happen to us, what do we normally do? How do we normally think? What did I do wrong? What did I do to deserve this? Now, it works in the reverse as well. When you're enjoying the accolades of hard work, and you're enjoying reputation and position, and then all of a sudden something difficult happens, something fa- someone falsely accuses you, or something goes down at work that you have nothing to do with, and then what might you be inclined to think? Well, I worked hard to get where I am. And so why is this happening to me? This is retributive theology. And it should be absolutely rejected. Now, also involved in this is something that can be, but hopefully won't be confusing to you. And that's the idea that God uses means. Right? That God has determined of His own will... Right? that we, we do enjoy the fruits of a faithful life. Right? Do, we, do you want to know the Lord? Do you want to step into His grace? Then it's certainly appropriate uh, that you would avail yourself to the Word of God that you would avail yourself to a faithful church, that you would be praying to the Lord, that you would seek out friends uh, in your midst that can draw you as well and sharpen you in the ways of God. That's a very, very important idea. So when we say, oh, well, God isn't working in my life and I don't know who He is, well, the question that you should ask yourselves is what do I have to do with the grace of God? Am I accessing the grace of God, that which is freely given to me? You say, well, I don't know what God wants me to do. Well, have you read the Word of God? Have you sought counsel from faithful people? Are you involving yourself in a faithful community of believers? Are you held accountable by God's people, this sort of idea? Are you willing to submit yourself to the ways and things of God? So, so this is an important idea that, of course, stands against and is in opposition to this concept of retributive theology because the reality is, is that when we are faithful, what does the Lord Jesus say? <laughs> you have been but a faithful servant in the house of the Lord. We will never make God our debtor by our own faithfulness. Our faithfulness and our involvement in the right means of grace will never for us be meritorious. They're all, of course, associated with the sweetness of being attached to the Lord Jesus Christ, our substitutionary atoner. Now, so let's look at this retributive theology. Chapter 1, verse 9, Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Does it shock you that Satan also believes in retributive theology? Why does does Job simply follow you for the glory of being related to Almighty God? Well, the answer to that question is, yes, in fact, he does. But Satan has no paradigm for that concept. Right? Now let's look at chapter 5, verses 8 through 13. And here's Eliphaz, one of Job's three friends. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, As for me, he's speaking to Job, I would seek God, and to, to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty, so that their hands achieve No success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. Now, we see in the first part of this narrative from Eliphaz that he has managed to say some absolutely beautifully true things about God. And Job, in this, in the book of Job, uh, he coins an idea that is commonplace in our day uh, that I often uh, use the term wind jamming. Job uses the term translated windy. And this is an example of wind jamming. What's Eliphaz doing? He is pontificating about all the wonderful glories of God, right? But he absolutely misapplies the truth. He's got a bullet and he didn't shoot the target. That's what he does. So, what does he say here to Job? He says, he catches the wise in their craftiness and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. Verse 13. Eliphaz's only paradigm for difficulty or blessing is quid pro quo. That's it. The only thing that he understands and the only thing that Job understands and the only thing that the other two friends understand is that blessing comes because I purchase it by my own actions. Curse comes because I purchase it with my own sin. This is the idea. This is retributive justice. And again, Eliphaz falls into the trap and he has no understanding for this idea uh, of the kind of suffering that Job is going through right now. He has no understanding of an unmerited suffering. No idea of that. And this is so... have you ever suffered in a way that was unmerited? You didn't take to yourself some foolish action or idea? You didn't do anything wrong, so to speak? That's unmerited suffering. God has great purpose in it, right? But for you to, for you to spend the rest of your life wondering why this happened would be an utter waste of time. It would, be, it would be this idea that God has nothing better for you to do but to dive into things that He is not going to tell you. Because it's not in His revealed Word, right? It's part of His decree, and it's secret. And so Eliphaz falls into the same trap. We go over here to chapter 6, verse 24. These are the words of Job. Chapter 6, verse 24, Job says, "...Teach me, and I will be silent." Make me understand how I have gone astray. How forceful are upright words. But what does reproof from you reprove? What is Job saying? Job is saying, look, I recognize that a man suffers because of what he's done. Again, that's the paradigm of retributive justice. And Job is saying, okay, so point to what I have done wrong. That's what Job is saying. What does your reproof reprove? Right? What is it? Go ahead. Right? He says, Is there any injustice in my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity chapter again, chapter six, verse thirty. Job asked the question that I encourage you to ask people around you. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Men, have you asked your wife that question? You are laid open before them, right? Job understands. He recognizes that this horrible calamity that I'm going through, because of his understanding of retributive justice, he recognizes that it must be because an individual has done something terribly wrong and Job has nothing that he's done terribly wrong, right? And so what's the outcome of Job's complaint. Hold on to your seat, and we'll get there. Look at chapter 9, verse 29. We see the flip side of retributive theology. Chapter 9, verse 29, I shall be condemned, why then do I labor in vain? Why do I labor in vain? Does that sound familiar at all to you? Cast your mind on the story of the prodigal son in Luke. Now think not of the prodigal son, but think of the one who didn't turn, the older brother. And he says to his father, I worked all these years for you, and you never gave me this or that. And what did the father say? All I have is yours. All I have is yours. And you're stuck in this paradigm of purchasing it when I give it to you freely. You can't buy it. You cannot purchase this. It must only be given. You you don't have enough money to buy it. Right? And you don't have any money to buy it with anyway. And this is the idea of retributive theology. Chapter 15, verse 20. Again, we're looking at a few places where we are, again, validating this idea that, yes, this is the paradigm upon which they're working. And if you were to read Job through in one sitting, and I certainly encourage you to do that, you would see a tremendous amount of repetition. But like the Apostle says, it's no problem for me to repeat this to you, because you need to hear it, and I need to say it. And so that's what's happening in the book of Job here. When we look at Job chapter 15, verse 20, what does Eliphaz say? He says, the wicked man rises in pain all his days, through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless. The wicked writhe in pain. What is Eliphaz saying? He's saying, I tell you what, Job... Let's course through all of the earth, why don't we? Do you see everybody in pain? Well, every single one of those people is wicked. That's why they're in pain. That's his only understanding. Aren't you thankful for the book of Job? Because we reject that. We know it isn't true. It cannot be true, and it doesn't fit into our own understanding of reality. That's not how you and I experience life, right? Stuff happens. It's all purposeful. Did you merit some of it? Did you purchase for yourself some problems? Yes, you did. But it isn't all like that, right? It isn't all like that. God has purposes and plans that we know nothing about. Job's wife took his theology to its logical conclusion in chapter 2, verse 9. So again, Job understood, his three friends understood, of this retributive theology, this idea of quid pro quo, right? So Job's wife, right, Mrs. Job, she puts all this in the tiller, right? She's thinking through, right, this uh, whatever family worship Job did, including retributive theology, apparently. Nonetheless, she's thinking, curse God and die. Look here, this whole thing is a bust, what, what, are, what are you doing? Right? Your devotion to God is an utter waste. Look, you too will suffer horribly. Why be so careful in obedience? It didn't work out, Job. What a horrible perspective to live under. And this is where Job is. Right? With his three friends. This is where he is in chapter 22, verses 1 through 9. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 9. Eliphaz looks at Job's current situation with no apparent knowledge of his characterological holiness. And he comes down to the conclusion in verse 5. Chapter 22. Eliphaz has this all figured out. What does he do? He looks at Job. What's happened to Job, by the way? What has happened to Job? I think he had like ten children. They're all dead. Hundreds of livestock representing the wealth of an individual. They're all gone. House destroyed. So think of a little pile of burning ashes with a wife over here that says, curse God and die, with friends that hang out and say nothing appropriate for seven days. They should have brought cookies, but they didn't. And Sal said nothing, but nonetheless, there's this little heap of ash that's burning, Job sitting here in the pile of it, with boils all over his skin. Physically afflicted. This is the situation. Eliphaz takes a look at this and he says in chapter 22, verse 5, is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. Have you ever heard of the idea of jumping to conclusions? Like this is, this is like, uh, you know, a pretty big jump to a conclusion, right? What data does Eliphaz have? He has Job's current situation, that's it. Apparently he knows nothing of Job's past. Right? But here here he is. And he says, By the looks of it, fella, you really blew it. What are we going to do now? The problem of retributive theology. Now, let's look at another issue, and that's the problem of misunderstanding and misapplying Scripture. The problem of misunderstanding and misapplying Scripture. Now think, of, think of Job again. Think of his three friends. Elihu is going to walk in here at some point. We must grow in our familiarity with Scripture, with biblical and systematic theology, in order to understand what the Bible is saying and how to apply it. That's one of the beauties of a confession of theology. We all really need instruction in righteousness. Let's look at the misapplication and the misunderstanding of Scripture. Chapter 2, verse 9. We'll take another wave through the book here as we look at this particular issue. Chapter 2, verse 9. Again, Job's wife fits into the category of retributive theology. She says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Surely those of you that are over the age of 15 have said something like, What good was it that I told the truth? Surely you've said that. Maybe some of you that are under 15. Why did I bother to show up on time? Why did I tell my boss I broke the tool? Why did I do that? Right? Job's wife says, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? The problem of misunderstanding leads to horrible confusion and bad conclusions inconsistent with the nature of God. Inconsistent with the nature of God? Yes. Does God still value your integrity? Is it still important? Yes. It was just as important before you told the truth as it was after. Right? But what you had before you is a test. You just found out whether or not you're a liar. And when you tell the truth, you're not a liar. Look all the way to chapter 40, verse 8. Here's what a misunderstanding and a misapplication of Scripture will do for you. So the Lord challenges Job here in Job chapter 40. beginning in verse 6 the lord answered job out of the whirlwind and said dress for action like a man i will question you and you make it known to me what is god saying to job he's saying job okay you you know all about my character in my theological underpinnings, in my decree, you dress like a man. I'll, I'll ask the questions now, and you answer me. How about that, Job? Well, tell you what, for right now, you're going to rule the world, okay? We're going to see how this goes, all right? Okay, check it out. We'll see, we'll see what happens here, okay, Job? He says, verse 8, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? What is he saying to Job? All he's saying is this, Job, if you're right, if you're right, and suffering is meritorious, and everything that I do is graceless, it's handled on a ledger between you and me, and there's no input to grace, there's no redeemer, there's no substitutionary atonement. If all of that is true, then what must be true of God? then he's unjust. Then God is the one that has failed here and not Job. God's the one with the misunderstanding and not Job. A horrifying conclusion that he's drawn. For Job to be correct in his understanding, then God must be wrong. The misapplication of Scripture. Let's look at chapter 32. Chapter 32. So we're looking away from Zophar, from Bildad, from Eliphaz. We're looking now at this interesting character, Elihu. Elihu makes it out of the book of Job without being rebuked by God. Chapter 32, verse 1, So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Job did justify somebody, but he justified himself. That doesn't mean that he was made right in his own eyes by his works. What the Bible is referring to there, this idea, all it's saying is that Job was persuaded he was right. Whatever the case may be, he was right in this case. So Elihu walks up to him, the son of Barakel, the buzz-eyed of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job. Why? Because he justified himself rather than God. Has nobody in this room ever thought that God got it wrong? God, did you not see that? God, did you not hear that prayer? God, are you are you are you seriously seeing what's happening here? God, are you? Did you step away from your omniscience, or your omnipresence, or your omnipower? God, do you? Are you with me, God? So Elihu recognizes that. Look here, God is never going to step away, the Lord Jesus says, My Father is working. Right? He is is the one maintaining the universe. And all the glories and attributes of God are 100% every moment. The misapplication of Scripture, I turn your attention to Job 22. This concept of windy responses, Job says in Job 15.2 and 16.3, this idea that, look guys, your, your, your theology is all in your mouth. They go on and on and on. Chapter 22 verses 21 to 30. Eliphaz. He says, agree with God and be at peace. They're Thereby good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, if you lay gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. So, Eliphaz turns out to be the father of, if you don't know the answer to the question, just make up another one and sound really smart while you do it. Right? That's what Eliphaz is doing now. He has managed to say that delighting yourself in God, then he will be to you gold. Is that not a true statement? Yes, it is. But it's got nothing to do with Job's situation right now. You see, and this is why Job obviously accuses these friends as, as being sinfully misapplying the Word of God. Chapter 25, verses 2 to 6. Bildad speaks, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in His high heaven. Is there any number to His armies? Upon whom does, he light, does His light not arise? Bildad speaks of the total depravity of man and the impossibility of justifying oneself in the eyes of a holy and perfect God. But again, this this doesn't attach itself, nor is it an application of Scripture such that applies to Job's situation. The situation at hand is unmerited suffering and its association with a just God. And the idea of God's grace that He gives, that He's purposeful in all the things that He does, right? That's what's at stake here. Job sees this need for a Redeemer. There's not the slightest indication by God in the entire book of Job that his suffering has anything to do with his personal sin but his lack of understanding led him into a grossly unbiblical view of God not as a living purposeful father but as an unjust omnipotent tyrant and these two are irreconcilable the misapplication of scripture you say well it's really no big deal We all make mistakes, right? Nobody's got perfect theology. Remember the smoldering pit that Job is sitting around with his three friends and his wife? Well, think about what would have happened if his three friends actually understood God's grace. Do you think the story would be a little bit different? Do you think Job's life would be a little bit different at this moment? Like, way different? In the end, Job isn't rebuked as one suffering for his sins, but he's humbled before the Lord as one who speaks authoritatively yet wrongly about God and so obscures God's purpose. I draw your attention to 38, verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Children, this is an interesting way to speak, isn't it? Who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Well, the idea is this. Job and his three friends, right, they are... Offering up counsel with information that is absolutely incorrect. It's sinfully incorrect, you see. And that's what he's talking about here. I draw your attention to chapter 42, verses 5 and 6. And here is what Job says here. Well, let's let's begin in verse two, chapter 42. And here's Job. He answers to the Lord. Job is convicted, right, of his misunderstanding. Job is beginning to see things now that he didn't understand before. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust And ashes. You know, at some point, the Apostle Peter stopped managing Jesus. He learned relatively quickly that he wasn't going to instruct the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, right? Now Job here, he says the same thing. He says, I will listen to what you say about what's right. I will, I will listen to you. I had heard about you, but now I see. Now I see. Now I'm beginning to understand a few things about who you are and how you act. And I also understand that there are some things that I cannot understand. And so I trust you when I understand and I trust you when I don't. And I'm through indicting you, God, with injustice And I am ready now to be a student at your feet. I have a few questions I'd like to ask you by way of application. The first question is this, is faithful growing biblical wisdom easily accessible? Is faithful, growing, biblical wisdom easily accessible? Proverbs 2 speaks of very difficult work. I don't know if any of you have ever spent time in a mine, but likely there's no more picture of challenging, industrious difficulty than trying to dig something that's precious out of a mine. But you see, that's the way the Bible describes learning the things of God. It's like digging out of a mine. But you would think that it's something that should always be on the surface for us to easily take up, right? In an hour day, a day where, yes, I will say it, of snowflakes... There's no desire to work hard, right? That's completely lost. And so this is the generation that we live in, and it has, yes, wiped off on all of us. And will we again enter into the glorious work of digging into the things of God? Does the work of the Holy Spirit and the priesthood of the believer mean there is no real trial work to do to gain understanding in the Scriptures? Does the work of the Holy Spirit and the concept of the priesthood of the believer mean there is no real trial work to do to gain understanding in the Scriptures? The answer to that is no. Because you see, the way the Holy Spirit works in our lives is not a works ex nihilo. Children, what does ex nihilo mean? It means without nothing. We see that in the first chapter of Genesis. God created the world without nothing. Well, you know what? When the Holy Spirit works in our lives, He doesn't work that way. He works with what you have in your soul, primarily. And if there ain't nothing there, what's He going to work with? You see, that's the way primarily the Holy Spirit works. It certainly isn't that way always. Obviously, we recognize that when God gives us regenerating life, it isn't there, and He puts it there. And then He calls us to, again, access the truths of God, the things of God, so that, you see, if I, if I recall to your mind something that's already there, that's altogether different than putting something in your mind. We have a nice little thing. We say, oh, I forgot that. Did you? Or did you never know it? You see, there's a difference. There's a distinct difference there. And both of them are okay, right? But let's be honest. We've got things that we must learn. Why do we assume we, so much, we know so much as to instantly win jam on whatever subject is at hand? How many of us are ready instantly with an answer Proverbs 29 2 says that a hasty word is a cover it's not inclined to the truth and again that speaks of our own understanding and embrace of what it is that we should do why do we assume that the way we were brought up must be correct or at least close enough After all, I turned out okay. My point in asking that question is this. Is it not likely that we are persuaded that the Bible has nothing in it for us regarding some of the most rudimentary aspects of life so that we simply lean into the way that We know because that's how we grew up. So you say, well, I don't know how to be a father, but I do know my dad. I don't know how to be a mother. I don't know how to correct children. I don't know what to tell my daughter about boys. I don't know this and that and the other. What are you going to do? Does the Scripture not say anything about that? You see, we... Are we not a people that are ready at any moment to, as Job says, have a windy answer for whatever comes about? How many of us say so much more than we really know? Now, what's the biblical alternative to that? Well, you may say, well, it's to be silent. No, that's not the biblical alternative. The biblical alternative to wind-jamming on utter foolishness is to know the truth and to speak only that which you know and to enter more fully into the trial work of the things of God. Do we treat the earnest study of Scripture as unnecessary for a faithful God-honoring life? Well, we all read together 2 Peter chapter 1. And 2 Peter chapter 1 seems to pile example on example on example, right, of this idea that we should, that we could, that we might should, no, that we must dig ourselves into the things of God so that we can live faithfully in this world. Does biblical wisdom and understanding only have to do with a small area of life? Justification by faith and nothing to do with one's life choices, etc., etc. Is it true that we have little to worry about if we misunderstand God's Word? Isn't that interesting how it is the nature of us as humans? We grow up slugging little girls, and what do we say? All that didn't hurt. We have it in our nature to misunderestimate the intensity of the things that we do wrong. And we also misunderestimate the horrors of misapplying and misunderstanding the truths of God's Word. Is it true that what we do doesn't matter? No, that isn't true. That's fatalism. You see, the reality is is that God works by means. It matters what you do every single moment. It matters what you do. And God has given to us a faithful, living Word. He is to us a faithful, loving Father. He's given to us a faithful, loving Redeemer. And He applies His truths and His life to us by a faithful, loving Spirit. Is our relationship to Christ impacted by our careful obedience to God's Word? Yes, it is. Have you ever heard someone say that God will love you just the same whether you do right or wrong. In the days of the Puritans, that was considered a dangerous statement. And it's dangerous because it doesn't tell the whole story. Because the reality is is our experience of reality rejects that very idea. You want a growing relationship with your brother? Try... Being angry with him every moment and calling out and critiquing him every second of the day. Is that the way to grow in a relationship with him? No, it isn't. It turns out that when we invest ourselves in loving others well, the response is often in kind. Wouldn't you like to be just like the Apostle John? And it was said of him, what? He's the one whom Jesus loved. Did you ever wonder why Jesus referred to him that way? You say, well, it's just the decree of God. Well, you can, you can believe that's true. It certainly is the decree. But there were means by which God fulfilled that decree. And I venture... That the means of fulfilling that decree was a particular devotion that John had to his Lord. And then he enjoyed a deeper fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that what we desire? The Bible says in Hosea chapter 4 verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. I got a confession to make to you. The Sunday sermon is not going to get you all the way to next week. It's not. And I try my best. But we're not going to make it on the Sunday sermon. We we've got to invest ourselves as God's people. The Lord Jesus says in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that when you wake, when you lie down, when you walk along the way, when you sit in your home, those are the times when we must invest in the things of God. Apparently the church in Geneva in Calvin's day had 27 opportunities to hear the proclamation of the Word of God each week. We can't do that on a Sunday morning sermon. Let's pray.